This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Rebecca Huntley and welcome to the History Listen. In the 1930s, a dentist in Colorado Springs in the United States noticed that the locals had large brown stains on their teeth. It looked like they'd been eating chocolate. Then years later, scientists figured out the cause of the brown teeth, naturally occurring fluoride in the water. But they also noticed something unusual for the times, no decay in their teeth. This is Grand Rapids, Michigan, a town becoming widely known to dentists and municipal authorities for its fight against tooth decay. Then a town on the other side of the country took that discovery and ran with it. Grand Rapids' fight against tooth decay started in January 1945 when fluoride was added to the water supply. And the initiative was a success. Now, our children can have better health through fluoridated water. They can drink away tomorrow's tooth decay. And from there, the idea spread around the world. But it wasn't without its detractors. Today on The History Listen, Joe Koning brings us the stories of three Australian towns and the fluoride in their water and what it took to get it there. Most of us are drinking fluoridated water. And if you're one of the lucky ones that are, maybe you're even taking it for granted. But that banality conceals the truth. The actual act of getting fluoride into a community's water in the first place is anything but ordinary. Tempers have frayed, lives have been threatened, officials have been misled, towns have descended into violence. But before all that, in Tasmania, the delightful singing voice of a young girl changed everything. I'm talking with Jeanette. Now, is that J-E... J-E-A-N-E-T-T-E. Their story began a number of years back in the house of the municipal chemist. Now, the interesting part that we have been talking about is your father... While reading a journal, he noticed an article concerning a chemical called fluoride, but used in a new way. After collecting data of a five-year test conducted in America, he prepared a report for submission to the Beaconsfield Council. And his involvement with fluoridation. And as to what inspired Frank Gray. Part of it was because I had quite a good singing voice at the time. Also, we had a friend who was an opera singer and she said, don't ever let your teeth get so bad that you end up with dentures because you won't like having dentures if you're trying to sing. Around about the same time, we had the school dentist round and he sent me home one day minus a tooth and Dad was fairly upset about it. He decided then that maybe it was time that something was done for everybody. As a result, the people of Beaconsfield have been drinking fluoridated water since 1953, a new chapter in dental health. After Beaconsfield, fluoridation spread across the country, with New South Wales leading the way. First came Yass in 1956, and then the idea arrived in Grafton, where it took off with a bang. I've got scars on me where I burnt myself as a little kid in, in dental laboratories before I went to preschool. Ken Dawes runs a denture clinic in Grafton. It was his father who brought the idea to town. Dad was the local dentist. Maybe just say what his name was? Bert and Ernest Dawes. 
Uh, good afternoon. We're just about to start an interview for the uh, memories of Burton regarding his life in Grafton or his early life. Burton, when were you born? 23rd of August, 1920. He was uh, a war veteran, uh, won a military cross, been a veteran, been an officer, been decorated. You put it all together. Right, what would you like to do? Oh, dentistry. Bang, and they put him into dentistry. In the late 50s, Bert and his family moved to Grafton. Bought a house in town, opened, bought an established practice. So obviously the business was busy and you made a success of it? Yes, 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 yes. He was a good dentist. Didn't take him long before, you know, he had a pretty fantastic following in this town and a lot of respect. Back in those days, oral hygiene was pretty different to how we know it today. You know, it was standard procedure to have all your teeth out by the time you were 21. I can even remember the late 70s, one or two cases a week would come through and the fathers brought the daughter in for dentures to have all her teeth, top and bottom, removed as a 21st birthday present. Get them out, get dentures. Then you've got no more problems. To your right. But Bert wasn't about to let that carry on for much longer because in 1957, the state government introduced the Fluoridation of Public Water Supplies Act. Which meant that the local government were able to legislate to introduce fluoridation. And he decided he wanted it in Grafton's water. But he couldn't put it there alone. I was quite friends with John Fay, another dentist in the town, and John had similar ideas to mine about dental health. We decided to run for council on a pro-fluoride ticket. John's actually still alive. He lives in Grafton, in a house by the river. With his wife, Barbara. My name is Barbara Fay, and I'm married to John Fay, who's going to give you his name too. What's that? What's your name? Could you introduce oh, John Fay, John. Can you describe what it was like back then? Everyone then was saying yes and no and arguing. Turns out, not everyone was keen on the idea. There were quite a few cranks and quacks and people who didn't understand. They are putting up what they considered was quite tangible reason to be in opposition to it, and they obviously attracted a following. Their message was powerful. It was poison. That was their focus. And was going to cause everybody to be injured, you know. There'd be people collapsing in the street as their legs gave up or their bones fell apart. It was quite ludicrous. People were saying, well, they were starting to believe them. And they went for it, and it got very, very, very hostile. Despite the hostility, Council soon decided that the water supplies of Grafton would indeed be fluoridated. And um, the fluoride plant was built... But as the old saying goes, you shouldn't count your fluoride plants before they successfully administer fluoride into your town's water supply. Bert was round at our place. I think he brought us some fish for tea. <laughs> and I remember saying, well, stop worrying because nothing can stop it now. It's going in the water tomorrow. But then it didn't. <laughs> Somebody blew it up. There's the outline of a plastic bucket on the concrete before. It looked as if the same old material had been in there. But the government wasn't about to let a little makeshift explosive get in the way. By the time Bert flew down to Sydney, the Minister for Health had already heard about the ordeal. It had made the papers. 
and he presented for a cheque for £5,000. We flew back to, to Grafton and uh, re-erected the fluoride plant. Do you know if they ever found out who did it? No, no not publicly, no. What John's saying is, they never charged the guy who did it, but everyone in town says they knew who it was. And that suspicion, that would be reinforced by what came next. About that time, my family, we received through the mail an anonymous letter with um, words to the effect that my family would meet the, the same fate as the fluoride plant. Ken was pretty young at the time, but he remembers the police being around. All night, there was police cars out the front. We had street lights put in by council outside our house, so it was all lit up. Do you remember the letters at all? Do you remember seeing them? I, yeah, I saw one of them. Picture your typical Hollywood ransom note. Letters cut from headlines out of the paper, arranged into threats and demands. Dad was pretty upset with it, and uh, you know, it's not every day you get a bomb threat. Now, after that, the anti-fluoridationists kept their campaign up and it was headed by uh, Dr Clutterbuck. He was a medical superintendent up at the base hospital. So that gave him extra clout from the status and nature of his position. He was English, was he? Was yes, he? I think so. Yes, yes, he was English. And it was the Jacaranda Festival was on. Each spring, when the Jacaranda trees are in full bloom, the people of Grafton hold a week of carnival. They were great. Everybody went, the whole town got involved. It was just wonderful. When the jacaranda is in full bloom and the changing light turns it from blue to royal purple to violet and lilac. What we used to do where Dad's practice was, was on the second story. We used to get out the front and sit on the awning. We had a bird's eye view of the whole thing. From his perch, Ken watched the floats as they passed. There were the usual few. The jacaranda queen float, all covered in flowers the local hotel's float, all covered in beer. But the float that Ken remembers the most was the one helmed by Dr Clutterbuck. Still see it as vividly as yesterday. It was shrouded in white sheets and it had black cutouts of rats and rat poison and people dying and drinking water full of poison and forexes all over it and skeletons and all this sort of stuff. And the people on board were all dressed in white overalls with gas masks from the Second World War. At the procession's end, all the floats headed out to the showground, where they lined up side by side to be judged. But by this stage, the men from the hotel's float were pretty drunk, and they hadn't been able to relieve themselves for a while. So one guy jumped down from the float. And of course the appropriate wheel next to their float was the um, anti-fluoridationist float and proceeded to urinate. When around the corner, came one of these anti-fluoridationists in overalls and gas masks, and it ended up being Clutterbuck's wife. <laughs> so around the corner came Clutterbuck, followed by half a dozen of these anti-fluoridationists, and the fisticuffs are on. This fight is intense. And of course, all these blokes had a bit of, a bit of terps in them too. <laughs> they weren't back away. She was on to the young and old. The paper will report that one man is stabbed in the chest with a tomato steak, another's struck in the face with a stock whip. Stones are being thrown, everything's crazy. But at some point during the chaos, Dr. Clutterbuck takes things a step further. 
he pulled a pistol at the end of this. And that was his undoing. He didn't actually fire it, but police got involved and he was sacked from the hospital. And so we lost Dr. Crutterback out of the equation. You might think the protesters would lay low for a while after a highly public brawl made headlines in at least two capital cities. But a couple of days later, Bert gets another bomb threat in the mail. Except this time, police had a lead. Whoever had sent the letter had made a mistake. Simply, it was dead set bad luck. He went to the news agency and bought a, an A4 writing pad. In those days, the writing pads used to have watermarks on the pages. The watermark was traced by the police to one particular news agency. And lo and behold, they'd only just got these writing pads and they'd only been out on the shelf for one or two days. And only one person had bought one and that was Billy Stratton. The police went right round there and of course found the writing pad and he was charged accordingly. Billy, like Bert, had served in the war. Which upset Dad enormously that he was actually a digger that would do this to another digger. But Billy had a different reputation around town. He was a character. He was a bit of a larrikin. He was always up to mischief. There was one episode where a particular chap jumped the fence and knocked off a chook. And he heard the commotion and he came out just as a bloke was jumping the fence and he shot him straight up the rear with a 410 shotgun. So that's the sort of bloke he was. But was he the type of bloke to blow up a fluoride plant? Well, remember, no one was ever charged, but... Everybody presumed or knew it was Billy Stratton that did it. Is there a reason you think it was him that did it? Well... You know, it's got webbed feet like a duck, it's billed like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it's a fair chance it's a duck. <laughs> but where one person might see a duck, another might see something else. And the particular person involved had been traumatised by war, as so many were after World War II, and got no treatment and no assistance and no anything, and were just, um, just left to wander. With Billy charged and Clutterbuck kicked out of the hospital, the town of Grafton was left to enjoy its fluoride in peace. The battle was over. We made a few enemies, mind you. We lost friends too, haven't we? It was well worthwhile. Its effects are still seen to this day. Generations have grown up in Grafton. They never have to sit in a dental chair. They don't know what toothache is. But there are still places in this country fighting that same fight. 12 days after the brawl at the Jacaranda Festival, the Minister for Health announced in Parliament the fluoridation of three new towns across the state. One of those was Bega, on the far south coast of New South Wales. I'm Jo Dodds. I'm a councillor with Bega Valley Shire Council. It would take 50 years for that story to enter its final act. And we recently, in 2018, had to make a decision about whether to fluoridate our community here. So the towns of Bega and Tarthra did fluoridate their water in 1963 but towns around it, such as Marimbula and Eden, who have since been amalgamated into the Beaker Valley Shire, they never did. About 2015, a report came to us that we were needing to upgrade our water plants. This is Sharon Tapscott. Along with Jo, she's one of two councillors I spoke to about how the decision played out. And whilst we were doing that, we should consider putting in the fluoride treatment that we'd put in the other parts of the shire. 
So at this point, fluoride wasn't on either of the council's radars, except that they were both aware that it was good for your teeth. We'd been going to the dentist down in Eden, and he was a Sydney dentist that had moved down here. And we would just have this conversation about the state of the teeth of the children. And I put it down to what I thought was a financial problem. And he said the difference between the Sydney children and the children in Eden was the fluoride. Up to that point, I didn't even know there was an argument against it. That would change pretty quickly. So we embarked on this process of getting as much information as we could as counsellors. And then when the communities heard about this, there was a big response from some people in some of those communities. We were bombarded, absolutely bombarded, with hours and hours of hours, videos, links, people on the phone, and they were all anti-fluoride. And we started to get emails saying, when I drink fluoridated water, it makes me feel unwell, or I've had bad experience with fluoride somewhere else and I love living here because there isn't any in the water and it's one of the few places I can live without it. I was rung up by one particularly obnoxious person who wanted to know what my credentials were and wanted to know how much study I had done and what my intelligence was. The amount of information they got soon became overwhelming and confusing. It causes autism. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. There's been this study. Oh, yes, but that study hasn't been qualified. You know, there was just so much conflicting evidence. I started to read the material. I was very cautious. I mean, I was still sitting in my pro-fluoride position, but started to take on board the level of angst that people had about this. It wasn't just the evidence they were producing. It was also their passion. But since the scientific consensus is so clearly behind water fluoridation, you have to ask, where were these people who were so staunchly against fluoride getting their information from? Also, there was some experts hired who came to the valley and presented their evidence as to fluoride being um, dangerous and negative. And that forum had a big turnout, and I was very curious to hear what they'd say. So. Who are these experts? And you say the same thing in Australia. You say, look, we've been doing this for 50 years and if there's any problems, we would know by now. Oh no, you wouldn't know by now unless you were actually looking. They have no substance, but they have the power. We don't have the power, but God, we have the substance. In communities, there are always your small group of conspiracy theorists, your people who oppose vaccinations, uh, flat earthers, you know, fake moon landings, things like that, combined with your natural and alternative health people. Those people are always around. This is Michael Foley, speaking on behalf of the Australian Dental Association. What's changed in the last 20 years or so is that they are now superbly well-connected through the internet, email, Facebook. And all those connections lead back to one place, the Fluoride Action Network, and their leader, Paul Connett. Perhaps the foremost evangelist, if I can say that, against the use of fluoridation and water. He is a environmental chemist and, of course, a toxicologist and has been a prominent critic in the U.S. and around the world. Saturday breakfast on 7.20 ABC Perth. Well, Professor Paul Conant is over from America. He's the Professor Emeritus in Environmental Chemistry. He Columbia is a very University. smart man. He, he has a science degree from Cambridge. He has a PhD from Dartmouth. 
The one really made me uh, worried. That is the level in mother's milk. If fluoride was necessary for kids' teeth, that's where you'd expect to find it. Baby's first meal, mother's milk. The level in mother's milk is incredibly low. The bottle-fed baby in a fluoridated community is getting 200... Michael Foley holds some strong opinions about Paul Connor. He knows enough about science to know that his arguments are morally bankrupt. He simply twists evidence, highly selective quotation from previous studies. I have no respect for the man whatsoever. No matter where you are in the world, if your town is dealing with the issue of water fluoridation, there's a good chance that Paul Connett is involved. Whether it is Bega Valley or Mackay or somewhere in California or Wellington in New Zealand or wherever, you will find exactly the same arguments and councillors in those towns are bombarded with letters and emails. Based out of the US, Paul runs the organisation as a charity with tax-free status. The Daily Telegraph in Sydney found the tax records and Connett's charity, in inverted commas, pulls in hundreds of thousands of dollars every year from anti-fluoridation people around the world who see him as the guiding light. In 2016, residents organised for Paul to come to the Shire and give presentations in two towns, Eden and Bega. They don't have to convince anybody of all their arguments. All they have to do is create doubts about one of those arguments and they've had a win. So, as an example, one argument they put forward is that fluoride lowers IQ. There has been some studies which have come up with a, a positive result for fluoride having a negative impact on health. But those studies were all of low reliability. They were all, I think, done in China. So in little Chinese towns that had high levels of fluoride in the water, and some of these levels were very high, well above what you would find with community water fluoridation, children in those places had lower IQs. And it's very easy to then make the argument, well, that must have been from the fluoride in the water. But these studies invariably didn't consider any other factors. Now, I can respond and say, but hang on, water fluoridation was widely introduced throughout America in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. And in that time, average IQ has actually risen and risen substantially. In the end, I decided, okay, I'm only a rep. I'm a rep for a community. You know, would the health department, who were really eager to have it done, would they pay for a survey? And they did. The results of a random telephone survey showed that 66.2% of the community did want fluoride. Some people thought the question asked in the survey was biased, but it was enough for Sharon. Had the community not wanted it, I would have had to have said, no, as much as I think it's a good idea, then my community doesn't want it, and I'm there to represent them. Joe looked at it a different way. The result was not a, a blanket yes. There was clearly a chunk of the community who weren't comfortable with that. I started to think, is this actually ethical in the bigger picture? And if people don't want that treatment for them, for any reason, whether that reason's based in fact or fiction, it doesn't actually matter. I didn't feel I had a right to make a decision to enforce somebody else to have something in their water that they didn't want in their water. So Sharon's a yes, Joe's a no, but there's seven other councillors in the Shire as well. And the decision would have to be made as a majority. 
Uh, council meetings are recorded and live streamed to the internet for public viewing by entering the chambers during an open The final meeting, the day the decision's made, is held on the 21st of February, 2018. I do not give council permission to introduce fluoride as mass medication. Every resident that gets up to speak is against the idea. Poisonous fertilizer waste byproduct magically transformed from toxic poison to a Tempers did start to get hot at the decision-making point. Don't yell when I'm speaking. And but I understood that they they felt like they were being forced into something they passionately didn't want. Every time I opened my mouth, when it became clear what my vote was going to be, then I was jumped on. I was you know talked over, shouted at. In the end, I just sat down and said, there's no point in me explaining it to you, you won't listen anyway. In the end, it became pretty clear which way the decision was going to go. The, the fluoride out of the water will be of benefit. I believe that fluoride in the water is equitable. I've read much material, but I will use my personal observations. I will use what I've been told by... The final vote, six votes for, two votes against, with one councillor being absent. Listening to the councillors speak, it's pretty clear that personal experiences played a big role in how they made their decisions. To which you might say, yeah, fair enough. Had we not had Beagle or Tarthra, had I not lived in Melbourne, my experience might have been different. If I just got all that information from these very, very convincing people, yeah, I might have said no. Or you might say, that's not good enough. We've all got single stories, but it's all irrelevant in isolation. So I found that a bit frustrating. You've got to look, if you're being asked a question like this, you have to go back to the metadata as far back as you can and be rigorous about that. If we find ourselves disagreeing with how our elected councillors handle these decisions, the methodologies they use, the evidence they believe, the evidence they ignore, maybe instead we should be asking, have we been getting the wrong people to make the decision? In 1968, there was actually a Royal Commission into Water Fluoridation held in Tasmania that asked this very question. Justice Sir Peter Crisp said, this must be a decision of the state government. It is not a decision for a referendum or for local councils, as people simply do not have the expertise in that. For a state government to refer this decision off to a referendum or to local governments would be an abrogation of the state government's responsibility. If this were a decision left to government, things might have been different. Joe and Sharon would have been saved a lot of grief. Bert may have never been threatened via the post. And maybe the Jacaranda Festival of 1968 may have gone off without a hitch. But on the other hand, Ken might not have a story to tell about a man and a bathtub. I um, bought a farm and of course there was a lot of paddocks and I needed some cattle troughs and I thought, well, everybody's just throwing these bathtubs out. So I put an ad in the paper, anybody uh, got any old bathtubs, I'll buy them off them. So the next thing I'm getting, I've got a couple of phone calls and yes, got a bathtub here, like 10 bucks or 20 bucks, you'd get a bathtub. So off I went and I got an address and then I went, you wouldn't want to know, it's Billy Stratton's got his bathtub for sale for 10 bucks. Did you think of saying something to him? Or? No, I wouldn't say, oh God, no. He didn't know who I was and I wasn't about to tell him. But I loaded the bathtub into the trailer. 
And I thought to myself, this is a bathtub he would have sat in and thought up all his evil deeds. And it's there to this day, still sitting there. Well, who thought something like fluoride in the water could spark fistfights in small towns? This episode was produced by Joe Coning with sound engineer Russell Stapleton and the supervising producer was Claudia Taranto. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Catch you next time on The History Listen. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.